Hi everyone, welcome to Spark Leadership. I am Wendy Tepiso Maledu, a senior behavioral scientist at CoachUp and the host of this show. I'm so happy that you're tuning into this episode because I must say, I feel like I'm standing on the shoulders of giants because I've had the honor and the privilege to speak with Professor Sir Kerry Cooper. He is the 50th anniversary professor of organizational psychology and health at the Manchester Business School. He is a founding president of the British Academy of Management. Professor Cooper is the author and editor of over 250 books in the field of occupational health psychology and workplace well-being. He has been an advisor to the World Health Organization and in 2014, he was awarded a knighthood for his contribution to the social sciences. Now you understand why I was saying that I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. This past year has been tough for many of us. The pandemic has forced us to adjust to new modes of working be it in embracing new digital technologies or adjusting to working from home. With it came new challenges like struggling with isolation and loneliness. Meanwhile, managers had to learn how to effectively support the employees working remotely. However, Professor Cooper says the evidence is overwhelming that workers now want to retain a flexible homework policy. And that hybrid working is here to stay. In our conversation, Professor shared his views on the benefits of hybrid working, what well-being looks like when working from home, and what managers can do to reduce stress, anxiety, and depression in the workplace. I cannot wait to share all of this wisdom and insight with you. So I'd like to give a warm, warm welcome to Professor Sir Kerry Cooper. Good to talk to you, Wendy. I look forward to our conversation. Thank you so much, Professor. So one of our standing features on the show is that our guests at the beginning, they share an interesting fact about themselves. And at the end, we will wrap up the show with future predictions. Can you please share with the listeners one interesting fact or any fun fact about yourself? I guess the most interesting thing is that where I came from, because I was born and raised in Hollywood. And that is interesting in the point of view that my mother, who was a fan of Cary Grant, named me Cary after Cary Grant and took me to all the films to watch him. But at that time I was born, there was a very famous actor called Gary Cooper. So as a kid, I was raised and people had trouble saying Cary Cooper. So I was called by teachers and and lots of friends in very early school years, Gary Cooper, the actor. So that's a a thing I've lived with all my life, I guess, with my name. Awesome. I'm often intrigued about how people are named. For example, I was named Windy. My parents told me that I was born on a windy day in August (laughs) in South Africa. So clearly the naming happens around different situations and circumstances. So, Professor, let's dive into it. You are a renowned expert in well-being. Before we share insights around this topic, what led you to this field? How did you become an expert in this field? Well, the work I've always done during my 
professional career is looking at stress at work, health and well-being, sort of HR type factors that have to do with people in the workplace. What causes them pressure? Uh, how can we alleviate that pressure? How can we reduce stress-related illness? And that's become very topical now because pre-COVID, the health and safety executive uh, calculated that the cost of stress, anxiety, and depression represented 57% of all long-term sickness absence in the UK economy. And that's roughly what you're finding throughout the developed world uh, in Europe and North America, that stress, anxiety, and depression are the leading cause of sickness absence and causing not only a lot of harm to individuals, but it's also affecting productivity, performance, uh, relationships, particularly at home. So it's a topic I think I've always been interested in. Interesting how circumstances and our surroundings inform the journey of our lives and shapes our purpose in one form or the other. So, Professor, let's dive right into it. As you've already indicated, the pandemic has taught us a lot of things, especially around stress. And we are now talking about the new normal as one of the words often used. And one of the new normal that's emerging is hybrid working, that being a mixture of workplace, office working and remote working. What is your view on hybrid working? Well, to be honest with you, pre-COVID, people wanted to work flexibly. In fact, I did a book called Flexible Work, which is an academic book which was published in May of 2020, but it was asking academics in North America, in Asia, in South Africa, Europe, the UK, Ireland, you know, what is the evidence on flexible working? And the evidence pre-COVID was people wanted to work more flexibly, but even though their employer may have offered options to work flexibly, they thought if they did, it would adversely affect their career. And research was showing that. And the evidence was that if they did work flexibly, they would be more job satisfied, have less sickness absence days, and it was much more productive. But people didn't take it up. But what the pandemic did is it forced us to work 100% remotely. But 100% remotely is not what people wanted. What they wanted was flexible working, partly from home, partly from a central office. So what the pandemic has done is pushed us into thinking now seriously, and, and employers are on board this now, to work a much more hybrid, flexible model. And that is the future. We have the technology to do it. But I must emphasize, there's a difference between remote working and hybrid working. Hybrid working means, Terry Cooper says, ah, today I have to go into the university, right? I'm going to go into the university uh, but tomorrow I'm going to be doing X, I'm having to do all sorts of conferences online, therefore I'm going to stay at home. And you choose what suits you, but also suits the employer. So hybrid working is really developing a psychological contract between you and your employer about what suits you in terms of flexible working and what suits them. And developing that psychological contract is now the future of work. People will no longer be in the office environment unless they have to. I mean, if you're a doctor or a nurse or a bus driver or a pilot, you've got to be at the coalface. But for the vast majority of service-based workers, the future is 
working substantially from home, but coming into the workplace one, two, three days a week. Well, Prof, I think you've said something profound here. I love how you've made the distinction between remote working and hybrid working, and that sense of psychological contract between the employer and the employee. Now, as you've said, Prof, hybrid working is here to stay. So, what then are the benefits of hybrid working? Okay, well, we've had a lot of evidence pre-COVID. You know, we reviewed it in my book. I mean, the evidence is that people are more job satisfied. They uh, have less sickness absence days. They have better work-life balance because they link with their families more. And where you can measure it, it enhances productivity. But we need more research on the productivity element of it. Now, pre-COVID, there were employers that thought this was a good idea. But I guess the majority didn't like the idea of of them having to manage people, some who are going to be in the office and some who are not going to be in the office. That is a complication. So why they now want to do it, employers, is number one, they can reduce their workspace. So maybe they had four floors in an office in London. They can go down to one or two because not everybody's going to be in every day nine to five. So that's one motivator. The other motivator is they don't have as much downtime. So if, if people work in Manchester, London, Paris, wherever they work, if they're working in a big city, it might take them an hour, an hour and a half to get in and an hour and an hour and a half to go home. That's a lot of downtime. In a hybrid model, people go in one, two, three days a week, depending on what's going on that week, but they're saving a lot of commute time. And we know from the research on commuting Commuting itself is extremely stressful and actually adversely affects performance of people when they get into the work environment. I hope you've been enjoying my conversation with Professor Sarah Cooper. So now that we've spoken about the benefits of hybrid working, I wanted to pivot the conversation to well-being. Working more hours from home for many means having to deal with more isolation and loneliness. We've seen and experienced how this whole notion of loneliness and isolation has had a huge impact on mental health during the pandemic. But I think this is something that many employees will have to face even after the pandemic. I asked Professor, what can organizations do to ensure that they're looking after the well-being of their employees at this time? Okay, well, I think the good news is that remember, people in the future are not going to work 100% remotely. So they will be coming into the office. Uh, managers will be able to see them, talk to them, and, and everything else. I think the key for the mental well-being of people is your boss, your line manager. He or she is very fundamental to your health and well-being from a variety of different points of view. Number one, the more your line manager, your boss has EQ, emotional intelligence, social interpersonal skills, the more they're going to recognize when you have unmanageable workloads, unrealistic deadlines, you're feeling stressed, uh, your behavior indicates that you're not coping well. And that recognition by the line manager can help in the sense of if they are socially and interpersonally skilled, the likelihood is they will be able to support you. They'll be better listeners. If, on the other hand, they're command and control type people, they don't have good people skills, then you probably have a problem. And um, we'll have to 
go to an EAP yourself, or you might end up losing your job or deciding you don't want to be in that job because it's too stressful and you can't talk to your line manager about it. And when you do, he or she doesn't listen to you. So again, I think the health and well-being of each of us in the context of work is your particular team, your particular boss. If that team is functional and socially supportive, and if your boss is a listener and is very supportive of you, you'll have less problems. Oh, Prof, you've just painted a beautiful picture. But I can imagine somebody saying, but what if I don't have that kind of, of a caring boss? What are some of the things that they can do to be able to manage their own well-being and mental health? Well, remember, it's everybody's responsibility, not just the line manager's responsibility for your health and well-being. So you're responsible for your own health and well-being. If you're having problems, you have to find a way to communicate that to your boss, whoever that is. If your boss is not very socially skilled, you've got to think it through carefully. One thing you can do, of course, is pick a time when your boss isn't stressed them himself or herself, because that's important. If you go to a boss with your problems when that boss has their own problems, you're going to be less effective in getting the response you need. So I think what's critical there is to pick a time when the boss seems kind of relaxed, things seem to be going well, and try to open up and reveal the issues that are confronting you. If your boss doesn't respond to that, then what you can do, of course, is go to HR. And ultimately, to be honest with you, if you have a boss that is totally unresponsive and, and says, I'm sorry, just get on with it. Have you read your contract? then you have to think about getting another job. And you, you do have options. We all have options. If you have a bullying boss or a non-responsive boss or somebody who manages you by, by fault-finding rather than praise and recognition, you try to develop a relationship with him or her. If it doesn't work, then you ought to consider another job either within that organization or leaving the organization and going for a job somewhere else. We have options. You are 100% right. I think sometimes we underestimate the power of options we have. You know, there's a saying that people don't leave organizations. They actually leave the managers that they report to. Isn't that interesting? But I think there's something key that you said there for me, Prof, around that we all need to take responsibility for our own well-being as employees. That for me is very foundational. So let's shift gears a bit to leadership and well-being. You've already alluded to the fact that leaders need to have emotional intelligence to be able to manage this hybrid working environment. So please share with us, Prof, what can leaders do or how can leaders be empowered around mental health and well-being? I think organizations are really into this now. Many organizations have directors of health and well-being or somebody's responsible for that in HR, or somebody's responsible for that in occupational health. So that's around. It's become what I call a strategic issue. It's no longer something like uh, mindfulness at lunch, or the well-being day with smoothies, or bean bags, or ping pong tables. That's not what well-being is. It is looking at it strategically. And one strategic issue is about leadership. Managers from shop floor to top floor, in many organizations now, given the pandemic, 
given the fact that managers have to manage people, some of whom are going to be in an office environment, some who are going to be working remotely, most of whom could suffer from mental health problems. So what we need is we need the organization to take this seriously, to take the role of leaders seriously in terms of arming them with the skill base they need to manage people. That means giving people EQ and social skill training, those managers that need it. There's going to be a group of managers in the workplace who have it naturally. If you have good interpersonal skills, social interpersonal skills, and emotional intelligence, that will help you recognize when people are not coping. That will help you in team building. That will help you in a hybrid working model. That will help you in determining what support and help they need. That's such an important skill. Everybody calls this, there are senior execs who call these skills the soft skills, but you know what? They're anything but soft. They are the real core of what a really good manager should have. If you want to team build and get the most out of people, if you're a kind person, if you listen to people, if you recognize when people aren't coping and they have unmanageable workloads, when you know about their personal life and know how that might be affecting their performance and well-being in the workplace, you know all that, then you're, you're on the way to having 80% of what you need. The rest of it that you need as a manager is some technical skill given the nature of the task you're doing. But for me, the big part of what a manager's role is are these so-called soft skills. But people tend to be promoted to management roles based on their technical skills, not their people skills. And so the problem we have in the UK and many developed countries throughout the world is that we need in the future to ensure when we promote people or recruit them from outside to managerial roles, there's parity between their people skills and their technical skills. Organizations are beginning to do that. But now we have a whole cadre of managers, some of whom have the natural skills, some who do not and need to be trained. And we have to take the reality of the situation that there'll be some who are in managerial roles who are untrainable in terms of developing their social skills uh, and their interpersonal skills. And those people ought to be put in a technical role, but not managing people. And we have to do this. And that means organizations have to look at all their management from shop floor to top floor and figure out who needs the training, who doesn't need the training because they have those skills, and which people should be diverted into a technical role and taken away from people. I was very happy to hear the professor emphasize the importance of emotional intelligence and these so-called soft skills in managerial roles. I mean, if leaders have to take care of the well-being of their employees, it's important to not just have technical skills, but also people and interpersonal skills to be able to identify when people are actually overloaded with work. Before we wrap up this episode, I asked the professor to give some predictions about the future of hybrid work and well-being. Well, I think we'll reverse the trend we did pre-COVID and we've had for decades. The main place where we're going to work from is home and that we'll go into work when we need to and we'll develop the psychological contract to do that. So that will continue on 
for sure in the next five, 10 years. I think people will have multiple kinds of jobs in the future. Maybe they won't work for just one employer. Maybe they work for two or three different employers, two, one, two days a week. That might be another possibility as well. I think that's likely to happen as well. Another trend that people are worried about is AI, artificial intelligence. And will that take away a good quality of working life from employees? I wouldn't worry about that. Or will that make unemployment, for example? Will that create unemployment? My own view is every technology that's ever come in has created more jobs, not lost them. When we had computers, everybody was talking about, God, what's going to happen now? I mean, I, I, you know, the computer will do my job. And look what the computer done. It, what it did was expand the opportunities of creating new businesses, new products, new services based on the use of the computer. Apps, for example. How about mobile phones? We have apps on mobile phones. We have everything. Our whole life is on mobile phones from our vaccine issues to getting into a football match to banking to everything. Has it created a five-hour working week because we have all these technologies? It has not. And there was a prediction years ago that we'd be working 20-hour weeks because all the technology would free us up. It hasn't freed us up. The technology just created new products, new services, and we're actually working longer hours. So the other thing I think the trend will be toward a four-day working week as well, less working time down the line. We already have countries doing that. Uh, New Zealand is already doing that. Iceland is considering it. A whole range of smaller countries are now considering the four-day working week. Studies have been shown in Sweden, Iceland, and elsewhere that it's more effective. It gives better people better work-life balance so they can spend more time with their families. There's a lot of trends taking place now, and the trends will be primarily for a higher quality of working life and for a culture of caring, well-being, and a more transparent set of relationships in the workplace. I love these predictions. Less working time, better work-life balance, culture of caring within organizations. We all look forward to that. Prof, for me, I must acknowledge that I'm sitting in the presence of wisdom. And I'd like you to just share one inspirational quote with our listeners before we close the show. Let's make sure we take out our pens and start writing this inspirational quote from Professor Kerry Cooper. Over to you, Professor. Okay, well... I remember years ago when I was a young academic and I was thinking about my life and where was I going to go, what was I going to do with it and everything else. And I remember reading a play by George Bernard Shaw called Mrs. Warren's Profession. And in it, something really stuck with me all my life. One of the characters says the following. This is the quote from the character, which I hope is something that I actually have done all my life since then. People are always blaming their circumstances for what they are. I don't believe in circumstances. The people who get on in this world are the people who get up and look for the circumstances they want. And if they can't find them, they make them. Powerful indeed, Professor. If you can't find the circumstance that you want, go out there and create one. Prof. Thank you, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure to speak to you about hybrid work and well-being. Thank you very much, Wendy. I really, really enjoyed it. 
What a stimulating conversation with Professor Sir Kerry Cooper. I hope you found it as insightful as I have learning about the future of hybrid work as well as challenges of managing employee well-being. If you like what you heard and want to explore more, head on over to coachhub.com to learn how we democratize coaching across all career levels. Join me next time as I speak with Sally Helgeson. Sally Helgeson is widely regarded as one of the most influential experts on female leadership and coaching. Her book, The Female Advantaged, published in 1990, was the first book to focus on what women had to contribute as leaders rather than how they needed to change and adapt. I'll speak with Sally about her latest book, How Women Rise, and how to break the habits that hold women back. From everyone at Coach Hub Studios, have a wonderful day. Happiness.